Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Game elements can be found all over modern life. The ability to rack up points, earn badges, see your name at the top of a leaderboard. They're supposed to make things that are hard or tedious, like exercising or even our jobs, more fun and lighthearted. But Adrian Hahn has grown increasingly uncomfortable with the way our lives have become gamified. And he's a game developer. We'll talk with Han about why he sees gamification as this century's most advanced form of behavior control. And we want to hear from you. Do you use games to be more productive or do they use you? Forum is next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Adrian Hahn is a game developer and co-creator of the popular running app Zombies Run where you can pretend you're being chased by zombies to make you run faster and farther or just to make your run more fun. So you'd think Han would be all in on bringing game elements into workplaces, schools, any situation where a difficult or boring activity can be made less difficult or boring. But he's not. Han sees gamification being used to manipulate and exploit us. And his new book is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. Welcome to Forum, Adrian Han. Great to be here. So first, when you say something's been gamified, what do you mean? Yeah, it's using ideas and principles from video games like missions, leaderboards, quests, achievements, badges for non-game purposes, you know, non-entertainment purposes, whether that's education or work or training or, you know, um, control, really. Yeah, so it's become really broad in scope, right? Like what might we be surprised to learn gamification has reached? So I think a lot of people will have experienced gamification through things like the Apple Watch or their phones. Um, But the surprising places for me when researching the book were places like schools. I think 95% of US schools now have an app called Class Dojo that gamifies uh, behavioral management in classrooms. Also, um, US truck drivers, interestingly. Um, Millions of US truck drivers now um, may have their work gamified because they're um, driving has to be monitored digitally now. So it's really all over the place. Well, the idea is that an activity uh, that may be repetitive 
is more engaging and enjoyable if you gamify it. But what have you seen? You you mentioned truck drivers. What have you seen when this has become a feature of certain jobs? What has been the impact? Maybe you can describe what you notice about truck drivers. Or also, I was quite fascinated by what you described about, you know, ride-hailing drivers, mm. Uber and Lyft drivers as well. Yeah, I think that people like the idea that uh, we can take uh, boring or repetitive activities and layer games on top of them. I think the problem is that every activity is different. And so if you just go and put points or badges there, then it can uh, just almost enhance the tedium. So if you look at something like uh, Uber drivers, their compensation these days is now being determined partly by the missions or the quests they get offered uh, every day. And so they might be told, if you complete 20 rides today, then you can get a $50 bonus. And of course, I think a lot of people who have used Uber or Lyft will know that drivers now have achievement badges um, based on their, their activity. And that's not, these, these ideas are from games, and they look like games. You know, we understand what points are and what badges are and what quests are. But actually, there's very little freedom that drivers have in participating in this game, you know, uh, if your pay is not massive, then a $50 bonus is quite a big chunk of your compensation. And so what seems like it would be fun is actually almost a way to manipulate your behavior against maybe what you would have done otherwise. Yeah, like maybe it wouldn't be safe for you to do another 10 rides or something if you're exhausted or... exactly for whatever other reason exists. Can you also talk about how you've seen gamification for warehouse workers or delivery drivers for like Amazon, for example? Yes, Amazon seems to be at the forefront of using uh, gamification in its fulfillment centers. And so it has um, quite a few different games which uh, workers can choose to play. And that's kind of an interesting point I want to come back to. And so... Um, it's difficult to talk about these because obviously Amazon doesn't share data and workers are not allowed to take photos or videos, though some have leaked out. And there was one that came out, uh, I think just last month, where a worker said that they were sad, they were leaving Amazon, their, their warehouse job, which it doesn't sound like they enjoyed, but they were sad to leave behind all their virtual pets they'd unlocked by packing boxes. So the way these games work in Amazon warehouses is that as you do your job, picking items or, or packing boxes, then you very, very, very slowly unlock new creatures or make your virtual dragon go faster against your colleagues. So it's a way for them to maybe make work more interesting, um, although the games are very simple, or to uh, basically uh, convince people to work harder and faster and longer um, because they're playing a game. What do you think is the motivation for Amazon to introduce these games to its workers? You you just mentioned working harder, faster, and longer. W what kinds of activities does this create among the staff that suggests that they are? Like, are they are they taking shorter breaks? Are they being monitored? Are there performance reviews based on, so, you know, yeah. Yeah, so workers have said that they get bonuses in the game if they return from breaks faster. So, of course... The only people who really know the true effect of this is Amazon. Um, you know, we would need data about injury rates and about um, about productivity rates from them. 
I think they've been doing these games for several years now, and uh, they've been hiring game designers for them. I assume that they're happy with the results, otherwise they would have cancelled it a long time ago. And my feeling is that they probably use it as a way to distract workers, and um, maybe they see productivity increases. Uh, maybe they say retention increases in the long term. Although, actually, um, going back to the person who, whose uh, video came out on TikTok, um, a lot of people commented saying, wow, this sounds like really fun. I'd, I'd love to work at Amazon. And then the original uh, person who took the video said, actually, you don't realize it, it's just this is just a way for them to uh, to get you to work harder. And it's not really that fun. Yeah, it almost seems like an invisible form of monitoring, too, or management as well that's taking place. I mean, you mentioned that you were wanting to get back to the word choose, that workers could choose to engage in these games. Yeah, so um, as far as we understand it, uh, obviously in Amazon warehouses, you don't have a lot of choice in what you do in a lot of uh, workplaces. And so from what we know, people are at their stations, you're packing boxes, and there's a blank monitor in front of them. And they can turn the monitor on and play the game, or they can just have it off. So it's not much of a choice. <laughs> you know, you can either be extremely bored or slightly less bored, but also slightly more manipulated. And, you know, just coming back to something you said there, I think that what's interesting about these uh, games is that they are really a new way a new sort of feedback mechanism for managers to uh, tell workers how they're doing and what they should do more right there's mm -hmm. no reason why this couldn't just be a boring bar chart or set of numbers on a screen but they've chosen to do this as a game and i think it plays into not just our understanding you know everyone plays games now everyone knows how these games work but also our feeling that games are offer freedom and they are fair and that if you play a game that if you do well, it's because you're good. And if you do badly, it's because you just need to get better. But of course, um, there's no law saying that. You can make a game that is deliberately biased against players. So that's, I think, the danger. We're talking with Adrian Hahn about our gamified lives. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Curious where you have seen gamification in your life or have been surprised to see it. If you've ever felt manipulated by it, for example, maybe it pushed you to do something that looking back you otherwise should not have or would not have chosen to do, you can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can call us 866-733-6786, Adrian, how, you, you say that there are quite a few things that have happen to give rise to gamification? What are these factors, the, the technological, the social, that, that led to this increase? So the term really started growing in usage about 15 years ago. And I think that's really two reasons why that's happened. And the first one is technological. Um, you know, for you to gamify an activity in a way that we understand it digitally, then we need to be able to track that activity digitally. And so the rise of smartphones, sensors, the internet, mobile broadband means that we now carry devices or we can have devices that are extremely cheap that can monitor our steps or our movements or, um, you know, now uh, AI powered cameras can obviously monitor what we do. And that's a huge change from just 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. And so if you have that data about people's behavior, 
it's very easy to then go and add a layer of gamification on top of that. But you, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, so so go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you do make this distinction between generic gamification and coercive gamification, and if you want to explore those two categories, sure. So, so I think that the other reason that that this is all happening is because we now have a world where pretty much everyone has played video games or is playing video games. And so generic gamification is where basically uh, a company will just pretty lazily add on points or badges or missions into an, an existing activity and, and not changing it otherwise. And so, you know, Amazon's warehouse would be a great example of that. You can imagine a really fun Amazon warehouse where you kind of have challenges to pack items into weirdly shaped boxes and you have you know it changes every day you know that would be different um that would obviously also decrease productivity probably <laughs> you know at amazon and so you know the generic way is kind of what they're doing where they're saying okay as you do more work your points go up and you can use those points for something else and that's not very interesting so um coercive gamification is where uh the player has no choice in uh, playing the game. And so that would be a good example, something like uh, Uber drivers or call center workers, or a lot of office workers now actually have their um, performance monitored by um, productivity software. And so, you know, normally we associate games with things that you choose to play. You know, we choose to play fun stuff. And so coercive gamification is a complete opposite. Well, we'll have more with Adrian Hahn. Adrian Hahn is CEO and founder of the game development company Six to Start, and his new book is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. And again, listeners, if you want to join the conversation with your thoughts on gamification increasingly showing up in our lives, you can do so by calling 866-733-6786 and posting your comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me tell you what we're talking about tomorrow. Human composting. While burial and cremation have been the main options for our bodies after we die, a new California law will make being composted an option in about five years or so, since it can be more climate friendly. So 
would you do it? Would you consider becoming soil? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org or by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300. Today, we're talking with game developer Adrian Hahn. We're talking about how our modern lives are inundated with games, some of which we play willingly and some we don't, and the effect that that has on us. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go to caller Joshua in Sacramento. Hi, Joshua. Hey, how's it going? Well, Thanks. go right ahead. Thanks for him. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, well, I just kind of tuned in uh, in the middle of the conversation and heard you guys talking about gamification, um, and it immediately made me think of my time uh, driving for Lyft and Uber um, and how those companies, uh, you know, when you're a worker uh, driving for them, uh, they absolutely gamify the app um, and make it, you know, they show you hot spots where you're likely more likely to get rides. Um, the whole way that they use surge pricing. Um, it, it while I was doing it, um, and you know, compounded with the fact that it's almost impossible to speak to a human being if you have any needs as a worker. Um, mm. It it really felt pretty dehumanizing um, and made me feel like I was just a tool to make money for the algorithms and the people who developed them. Wow, Joshua, thanks for sharing that. And it it really does underscore what we were talking about earlier with gamification, and especially in the realm of drivers. Um, Adrian, your reaction to what Joshua is saying? I think that's fascinating. And, you know, a big part of this is the fact that he wasn't able to go and talk to a manager. You know, this is the interface through which um, companies now choose to you know, control and feedback to their employees. And we want sometimes to be able to talk to someone human to explain what's going on. And so for you to only know or, or only be able to respond through a game or something that feels like a game, I mean, that does feel manipulative. And also just the dehumanizing aspect of it. Psychologically, when we are playing a game, does something happen to us where we can lose sight of the human? Well, I think that, you know, different people react in different ways. Um, I know that when I play a video game, I'm a completionist. You know, Uh, I, I sort of can't stop myself from trying to complete the game. And I think that there are uh, designs that, that prey upon that behavior. Now, obviously, most um, people are able to choose, you know, to stop playing a video game. But when they're at work, um, it might be difficult to resist that. I also want to ask you about an example you gave at the beginning of our conversation. You called it Class Dojo. Mm. What is that? So this is a really popular app. It does two things. The first one is kind of like a private social network for students, teachers, and parents to share you know, homework and that sort of thing. That's fine. And the second part is a behavioral management system. And basically, teachers set up a grid uh, for each class they have of each student, and they can reward or deduct points from students for a custom list of behaviors. So... Maybe you might give 20 points if a student is being quiet or working well, and you might give minus 20 points if they're being disruptive or, in one case, we've heard about going to the toilet too much. And so, you know, we have heard, of course, this is not new. People have given uh, points and badges to students in the past. That's not a new thing. But what is new about Class Dojo is just how um, frequent and real-time the interaction is. And if you listen to what parents and students say 
um, some people like it actually, but some some students just feel terrified about, you know, are, are, am I going to get minus points? Or am I going to get plus points? And they start to really change their behavior just to maximize their points. Now, we have to ask the question, is that how we actually want to motivate students in school just to get more points? Yes. Besides just that, there was this interesting anecdote you shared in You've Been Played of a six-year-old who, <laughs> I guess, told her parents she preferred not to go to school because her points were very high and, and feared losing points. Yes. Yes. And there's, well, there's also a, a, a kid who, who told a reporter, oh, I like, I like it because it makes me feel like a dog when it gets a treat. Hmm. It's almost like a, there is this audio element to it that's almost Pavlovian. Can you talk about that audio element as well? It, it's really interesting. So I thought that um, the most powerful thing that Class Dojo could do would maybe be having a big screen with all the people's schools, all the students' schools at the front of the classroom. And it turns out that's just really distracting. What works really well, teachers have said, is the sound effect, especially the sound effect when points are deducted. And so... If a teacher presses a button uh, on their phone and you hear the sort of disappointed points being deducted noise, everyone goes quiet because they're not sure who got told off, you know, who, who had the points go down. And there was this amazing blog post, which has now been deleted from Class Dojo's blog, which uh, suggested that teachers should set up a fake student in the app so they could occasionally deduct points from that student so as to uh, keep the rest of the students in line. And you have actually compared this to Foucault and just yes. sort of the constant surveillance, discipline, punish. I don't even, I mean, there's so much that, that Foucault talks about here. But I guess the part of it that it feels like we're really losing sight of when someone says create a fake student so that you can manipulate your children is that do you feel like we're not asking ourselves whether this is benefiting kids? It sounds like it's benefiting classroom management because you say this app has gotten a lot of positive response from yeah. teachers and even some parents. You know, I try to be really fair in the book into thinking, well, why are people using this? I, I don't think teachers are you know, evil. Um, I think that they are using the tools that they have available. Class Dojo is free, so they can just use it. Um, and, you know, if, if you have a... You know, if you're looking for short-term results, then maybe this works. And there are some studies showing that maybe it does make students quieter in the short term. Although I did see one student, uh, one study saying that uh, while behavior might have improved, actually uh, the students were less interested and less uh, motivated in mm -hmm. the class overall. So maybe that's something we might see in the long term. Uh, let me go to another caller, Greg in San Francisco. Hi, Greg. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, there is a insurance company, Progressive Insurance, that offers a uh, form of insurance or a policy type called uh, Snapshot, where by monitoring your driving, uh, they can uh, establish your rates. And um, while many of the examples you've cited uh, have obvious negative, uh, <laughs> have, you know, obviously uh, things that might be perceived as negative, I'd be curious to see what thought uh, gamifying better behavior on the uh, roads and streets uh, might uh, bring or take away from society. And I'll take my mm. answer here. Greg, thanks. Um, you know, I think it's a really interesting question. So in the UK, um, more people are buying private health insurance now. And I, I had it for a few years. And the way that it would uh, 
motivate people to be healthier is through gamification, um, like like what uh, Greg describes. And so if you go to the gym, then you got 20 points. If you bought vegetables from a supermarket, you get more points. If you took more steps, you get more points. And I think that, you know, you could say, well, maybe this is a good thing and uh, we should motivate people in that way. And they especially did this because if you got lots of points, you would have uh, pretty big reductions off your insurance premiums, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of pounds per year. Um, of course, you know, when <laughs> when I started doing this, I started cheating, uh, as, as a lot of people would, you know, I'd go to the gym, tap in, hang around for five minutes, and then leave uh, to get those points. And so you have to look about, look, is this really making, uh, changing behavior in the way that we think it is? Because if you just look at the points, maybe it is, but um, we've seen actually with drivers, when um, they're being more monitored, uh, they they actually do uh, truck drivers. They do drive. Um, they don't take as uh, they don't drive for as long. They don't get as fatigued, but actually they drive faster, and so they have more accidents. So it's very possible for gamification to have unintended effects. Yeah. Well, let me read this comment. This listener writes: I'm a registered nurse. We are required to get training to keep us current every year and to confirm that we understand the law, etc. It's very annoying that our corporate culture has switched from live trainings to these forced gamifications. The trainings force you to move items into the right box, spin wheels for the next fact, all sorts of silly things which I find insulting and wasteful of my very limited time. We're talking with Adrian Hahn about our gamified lives, about how gamification has basically become a major part of modern life. Some of these games we play willingly, some of those we don't. And the ways that they make us feel both positively and negatively, um, and potentially the impact that we're having. And of course, you can join the conversation if you want to talk about gamified apps that you have found helpful, or maybe ones that you have felt manipulated by, or even if you have familiarity with any of the ones that have come up, uh, Class Dojo, for example. Um, our email address forum at kqed.org, our phone number 866-733-6786. We're at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. When I think about what uh, Greg was talking about with driving, what you were talking about with health uh, and trying to demonstrate that you are leading a healthy life, what is the relationship between gamification and privacy? Well, you know, gamification usually takes place uh, in the cloud, you know, o online. And so uh, it, it it's usually not just on your phone. And so you end up sharing data with third parties um, that they, you know, may be able to use in different ways. Um, a lot of gamification in terms of health and fitness is also based around ideas of competition. So can you beat your friend? You know, can you walk more steps? And um you know, some people really like that and they like the competition and that's great. But we do see this sort of idea of uh, sharing your personal work data more and more widely as a way to motivate people to do stuff. And that does seem a bit worrying. Well, Ron writes, what's the difference between motivation and manipulation? And I think you're getting at that a little bit. I mean, we can we can get more subtle with regard to when you've discussed health and fitness apps, 
um, like your own Zombies Run or Fitbit or Peloton or, or other things that are, the idea behind them is that they are supposed to be beneficial to us to make us healthier. What do you see as sort of the interplay of that benefit, the fact that we choose to use these apps generally, um, and and when you feel like it starts to become manipulation. Right. I, I think this is really simple. It comes down to whether people are choosing uh, to do something uh, that they want to, right? So, for example, um, I, I'm, you know, like I like having motivation to work out more. So sometimes I might join, you know, a running club or, or go to a race, and that's motivating. I'm the person behind that. But then, um, you know, at the start of this month, I got this notification on my watch saying, oh, you should uh, enroll in this September challenge to try and exercise even more than you did in August. And I was thinking, I already exercised quite a lot in August. If I exercise even more this month, I'm going to probably burn myself out. And so where something becomes manipulation is basically trying to give it someone to do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise that's and, and so that actually comes across quite a lot in um health and fitness where you know perhaps you might get a fitbit because you just wanted to walk more and then because of the way the app is designed you end up doing twenty thousand steps thirty thousand steps forty thousand steps and um, there's a point at which it doesn't really stop. It's not really that helpful to your health anymore. Um, you get diminishing returns, but also you might just start getting unhealthy. You might uh, injure yourself, and this benefits. I mean, the injury doesn't benefit the company, but the increased engagement in the app is something that the company is very interested in, and so that's why they're trying to just get that number to go up because they want you to use the product more. Does it make you feel bad about yourself? Um, as in, as in, as a developer or as a user? No, as a user, but we can talk about the developer <laughs> side in a moment. But as a user, if someone is, you've exercised really hard and then you've got this other thing saying you should do the September challenge or whatever. Right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was a thing that happened on my watch where it used to, I turned this off. I had to figure out how to do it. But at 11.30 p.m. at night, it would say, hey, you should go and close your exercise ring. Um, you just need to go and burn 200 more calories. And I was like, so I meant to go out for a run, <laughs> you know, just before midnight in order to close my rings. Um, and people talk about feeling really guilty. You know, they talk about having a streak, you know, having an unbroken chain of 200 or 300 days where they've um, closed their rings and hit, you know, Apple's fitness goals that they gave them. And, you know, we know from health and fitness, you should have rest days, you know, you should have time to not be working out as much. And, you know, the gamification in a lot of these uh, applications is simply too simple and too uh, basic to understand these nuances that are really important towards our health. Let me go to caller Jeff in San Francisco. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? Um, I just was listening to the show and thinking that this has been going on in our lives for generations um, because essentially your credit score is points points rewarded for changing your your habits as far as using your credit. And, you know, I, I think that this has been going on. Uh, it's part of human activity for a long time. Totally. And now yeah. take comments off the air. 
Jeff, thanks. And and Adrian, you acknowledge this. So why is this so different? Why is this so insidious? Or why is it, yeah. yeah? How is this different from what we've all experienced for, I mean, forever? Jeff makes a really good point. You know, we can see um, ideas from gamification, like in you know, a military honors or medals or or leaderboards going back centuries or millennia. What's different now is that the feedback loops are much tighter. So, you know, if you go back 100 years or 200 years, yes, you might get graded on your performance at work or at school, but that would only happen fairly infrequently. um, And it would not really be that easy to scale. You know, you would still have a human involved in that process. But now, uh, today, of course, you know, you can be gamified in real time. You know, as soon as you pack a box, as soon as you pick up a passenger on Uber, as soon as you answer a phone call, then your score will go up and you will see that score change um, on your phone or on your smartwatch. And so it is the same principle, absolutely. But when you speed up a thousand times, uh, it has very different effects. Well, Steve writes, companies are responding to changes in our brains that have happened in the past decade. We are all addicted to the dopamine hit that we get when we play mobile games or even when we get a like on our Facebook post. We are less engaged at work because our brains are different now. A responsible company would not attempt to abuse us with gamification, but rather help us find new ways to break that addiction to meaningless dopamine and get back to the fulfillment of real life. We're coming up on a break, but we can talk more about this after. But really quickly, you do have a background in neuroscience, Adrian. Yes. What do you think of what Steve is saying here? Well, you know, everything we do in the world changes the neurochemistry of our brain to some degree. I I, I think dopamine, you know, it's an important chemical in terms of reward. Um, I don't think we need to sort of go to neurochemistry to understand what's going on here. Um, I think we could all understand that uh, we sometimes fall into compulsive loops of behavior. I know I do when I play a game or, you know, get into some sort of gamified activity. And I do think that companies understand what they're doing. You know, they they can see that it's having effects and we should be more aware of that. We'll talk more with Adrian Hahn, author of You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap! The job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine We're talking down. with Adrian Hahn about our Game of Five Lives. Adrian Hahn is a game developer, CEO and founder of the game development company Six to Start, and also the co-creator of the game Zombies Run. And we're talking about how we use games to make unpleasant things like cleaning up the nursery <laughs> more pleasant. And you, our listeners, are sharing how games or gamification has affected your life, where you've seen that in your life. For example, Stephanie writes, is gamification the reason why my Uber driver was driving 90 miles an hour on a rainy night last week? My husband and I were terrified and had to tell him to slow down, which he did, thankfully. So Adrian, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about, I don't know, dopamine hits and kind of what happens to us when we're playing a game. Um, but but you've your background in psychology and neuroscience can also probably tell us a little bit about what makes games appealing. Why, when you turn a job into a game, what motivations they tap into? Yeah, so I think that, you know, what video games added... Uh, gamification elements like points and badges and leaderboards and, and progress bars as a way to help people uh, understand their progress through the game. And, you know, if you are trying something new, uh, if you're trying to uh, run for the first time, your progress might be quite slow and it might be pretty uh, depressing. It might be a bit discouraging. And so having some sort of points or badges might actually be motivating there. Um, you know, where companies go wrong and a lot of uh, institutions go wrong is by s imagining that this is really the only way to motivate people. And so I think this comes from a pretty old uh, theory in psychology called behaviorism. And behaviorism basically uh, understands humans as just black boxes where you give them some sort of reward or punishment and maybe they change the behavior or maybe they don't. And so if you can look at gamification, you can see what that's going, what's happening. If, if someone runs more, if someone does uh, work faster, then you give them more points and uh, vice versa. But of course, you know, if we look at uh, really successful video games uh, like, you know, Legend of Zelda, The Breath of the Wild or Elden Ring or, or things like that, they don't really have uh, a lot of that kind of traditional gamification element. Uh, what they do is a look, whether deliberately or not, at different psychological theories. And so a more recent one that I think is really useful is self-determination theory. And self-determination theory um, suggests that people are motivated through autonomy. People want to have agency in their lives. You know, they want to feel like they have control over what they do. They're motivated by mastery. So they um, love to learn a skill and be good at it and, and uh, exercise that skill. And also connectedness. People want to feel like what they're doing matters towards other people and is valuable to the community. And you can notice in self-determination theory, there's nothing about you know getting badges and rewards and punishments. Maybe that's a small part of it, but actually, we can humans can be motivated in different ways. You know, it doesn't have to just be through carrots and sticks. Yes, and you know, you quoted Mary Poppins in your book, mm -hmm. which is in part why we played that song coming out of the break 
But you were basically saying that she was onto something in the sense that her interests really were the kids and the kids' <laughs> betterment as opposed to making them, as opposed to cleaning the nursery, right? It was more about the children themselves. And I guess that's what you're getting at, right? When you're talking about game developers who are connecting to to the parts of our psyche or our motivations that are actually in a way good for us. So, so talk a little bit about your profession now from a developer side of things. Like what is ethical gamification essentially, or what is ethical game development in your view and, and how have you wrestled with this or have you had to wrestle with this? Well, well, we, you know, we do. I mean, you know, we're a company and so our job is to impart, you know, um, make money and, and return value. Uh, obviously we're also here for our players and for our employees. And so trying to balance all those needs is tricky, as it is in any company. Um, and I think where a lot of companies end up in uh, is just maximizing profit and um, not really attending to the needs of their users. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that you really do have to try and have the user's needs in account. And so that sounds a bit paternalistic, but I mean... It, one example is in my own game, Zombies Run. We don't have that much gamification in it, which sounds strange. So um, we don't have the idea of streaks, whereas a lot of uh, apps do. And a streak is where we might reward players for running five days in a row or 10 days in a row or 20 days in a row. And we could increase our engagement with Zombies Run if we had streaks. I I'm sure of it. And we might also increase our subscriber count if we said hey if you just play this every day then that's going to be good for you in the game but i don't believe that is good for the player i think that we should not reward people or punish people for just um playing mindlessly every day you know that's not how running works or health and fitness works and so you know that's something where profit is at conflict with your ethics and you need to choose what you want to do and gamification is, is forcing us to make those choices in new ways. Yeah, you know what I find odd is, so I have an Apple Watch, but I don't remember choosing <laughs> to have them monitor. Like I remember I went like 12 steps out the door and I got this thing that was like record walk. Yes. <laughs> it's just very bad that 12 steps would be a record walk for me. Though at the same time, I have no idea if the data are accurate or anything, but it just sort of popped up. And all of a sudden I find myself, you know, having yeah. rings. <laughs> I mean, you know, a big part of this is that, um, you know, it's one thing if someone chooses to go and download Zombies Run. I mean, we, we're pretty upfront about it being a game. <laughs> but uh, if you have an iOS device, um, then I, I started reading a book. And after five minutes, it said, congratulations, Adrian, you've completed your reading achievement for today. I was like, I, I didn't set a reading <laughs> achievement. You know, that that's your reading achievement. Um, and similarly, you know, with the Apple Watch, it will... Um, you know, it tells people to go and exercise for 30 minutes or, or stand up for 12 hours, you know, that sort of thing. And this is not something that we chose to do. It, they, they had it on by default. Um, if people choose to add gamification into their lives, then that's great. That's fine. I think a lot of people enjoy it. But, um, you know, as these devices become more and more uh, widespread and as they sort of get centralized, you know, the, you don't have a lot of choices about smartwatches. If you have an iPhone, you can use the Apple Watch or, or not a lot else. Um, then 
it's really important that users have more choice about this, I think. Yeah, there's sort of like the opt the opt-in element matters a lot, mm. it sounds like. Um, we'll hear a couple more reflections from our guest. Greg writes, this shows a difference. White-collar gamification is about incentives to do things to increase health and lower a company's health insurance costs. Blue-collar games are about incentives to increase the pace of work, which actually worsens the laborer's health. Alexis writes, my favorite meditation app uses gamification in the form of having a checklist of meditations I should do, and there's a streak that gets reset if I miss a day. Another person, Robert, writes, it really boils down to addiction. For a fictionalized take on the extreme case, check out the episode Nosedive on Black Mirror, where the social media rating is immediate. Ooh, do you want to talk a little bit? Well, first, if you want to talk about addiction and the role that addiction plays um, and, and how, yeah. Well, how. I mean, you know, it's such a touchy subject, <laughs> you know, in the games industry. Every time someone says the word addiction, people uh, get blacklisted because uh, game game developers obviously don't want to have any kind of comparison to, you know, drugs or addictive substances. But I think there's a spectrum here. You know, you can have something where there's really no coercion and no manipulation to play. And then you have some tricks, I think, that like streaks that we heard about, um, like checklists, that maybe do encourage people to do, or they prey upon, um, you know, psychological ticks that we have to complete things uh, that, um, again, just push people towards doing things that they wouldn't have done. And... You know, I used to play Farmville a lot, um, <laughs> which is not a very interesting game at all. I used to play these games for like several years. And then uh, I was I was eff effectively addicted to it, although not in any way as bad as, you know, drug addiction or alcohol addiction. But then the way I look at it is that after I finished playing, I just thought this was just a complete waste of my time. You know, I wish I'd just spent my time on something completely different. I really regretted that. And I think as designers, we need to make sure that we don't make people do something that they regret, even if it's just wasting time or a bit of money. And so if we do that through addiction, then we should, or, or, or those, these kind of psychological mechanisms, we need to take a step back. We haven't yet talked about governments and Robin's comment about a bit of a dystopian, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the Chinese government's attempt to implement a so-called civility score system, which you, you looked at quite a bit? Yeah, so this is probably one of the most well-known um, forms of state gamification. I think a lot of people have heard about the Chinese social credit score, you know, how the Chinese government is trying to incentivize or control its citizens through, you know, through gamification, effectively. Um, if you look into it, it, it's sort of not as bad as that. I'm not trying to excuse anyone. Um, it's more that the Chinese government has expressed a strong interest in, in ways to increase social trust. And they think that you can make people trust each other more through points and badges, which I disagree with. And so there's a number of pilot programs in uh, at least a dozen cities across China. And of course, cities in China are pretty big. So, so that is tens of millions of people at least. Um, now, they aren't very sophisticated, and they usually don't work that well, um, but there are a lot of people who are affected, and they can get nice bonuses, uh, like you know, better loan interest rates and better access to public services. Um, they can get punished as well. But for me, you know, the, the problem with the Chinese social credit score experiments is not so much that they're 
really that effective because they're not that effective actually at the moment it's more that they're trying the government is trying to do this and they think it's a good idea and a lot of citizens actually think it's a good idea and what's fascinating and this isn't in the book is that a lot of chinese citizens think it's a good idea because they've looked at the west and they say well you already have <laughs> social you have credit scores you know you have financial credit scores and so why shouldn't we have more of that in china Yes. So you're saying that when we think about a social credit score, like getting rewarded for volunteering, or, mm. you know, being a good driver yeah. or something yeah. like that, and we think that it can't happen here, you're talking about how China actually, or the citizens, have justification or yeah. maybe even ideas based on things that we've already done in the U.S. Yes, yes. And and arguably, um, as, as someone pointed out, I think the... You know, financial uh, credit scores that we have are actually more widespread and uh, more pervasive in people's lives than the Chinese social credit score. Um, if you have a good credit score, it affects so much of uh, what you can do. I know in some cases it's not meant to, but um, you know, your employment, your interest rates, being able to get a mortgage, you know, being able to buy a car—it's—it's it's, um, you know, how you live your life. Adrian Han on our Gamified Lives. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to just a few more comments that we are getting here. Cynthia writes, games have their place and can be useful tools, but they are not real life. It is disturbing if young people have a game-playing approach to life as their only frame of reference, doing your own thinking, thinking outside the game box gets harder and harder to do. If we are concerned about gamification as being insidious, manipulative, controlling us, how do we fight back? As individuals, um, there's only a limited number of things you can do. Um, but you can look at the defaults that have been set on your phone or on your applications. So you can turn off gamification on a lot of things if you look hard enough. Um, I think people should be just more skeptical about gamification. If you see an app um, trying to incentivize you through badges or rewards, you should just go and say, look, is this really in my benefit or am I just being manipulated? And maybe it is in your benefit and you want to learn this foreign language or you want to meditate more. And that's maybe that's okay, but uh, you, we should really question that. But of course, you know, if you're at work and you drive for Uber, um, then uh, you don't really have much choice. You can't turn that off. And so we have to go a step up and say, well, how do we give workers more power um, to control the conditions of their work? Is that through unionization? Is that through, you know, more regulation of workplaces? Um, is that through, you know, giving workers more choices in where they can go? You know, that becomes a political question, and um, which I know is a bit unsatisfying, but uh, that's where a lot of things end up at, unfortunately. Well, Beth writes, as someone who doesn't text or live online, it saddens me that so many people cannot handle quietness. I love working and being productive and don't need to be gamed. How many companies are simply gamifying their workers because the workers do not know how to self-stimulate mm. to be productive? Uh, this touches a little bit on the earlier comment about how our brains are changing and so on. And, and I don't know if it's it, it's that workers do not know how to self-stimulate to be productive. But I do wonder if you feel like there are shifts that we have made 
psychologically or culturally that contribute to the rise of gamification or if, if there's a chicken or egg situation here i'm just yeah i'm i'm hesitant to blame workers you know if you are right. in a job that is incredibly repetitive and where you have no agency um and you don't feel like you're benefiting society then of course your motivation is going to be pretty low and, and maybe your productivity will be low um and so i think Companies are gamifying this as a way of putting a kind of plaster onto the problem of motivation. They're saying, why, are you, why aren't you more passionate about answering you know, phone calls from angry customers and reading a script? I mean, I think the answer is inherent. So um, the way to, to make sure this isn't necessary is by changing the nature of the work itself and saying, okay, well, how can we give people more agency and, and uh, let them exercise their skills? Uh, and that way, people won't be so bored and won't need to have their you know, life gamified. So where do you see gamification going? You kind of thought it would flame out at one point, yeah. but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I hoped it would flame out. I, I think it's going to keep getting bigger, actually. And um, part of the reason for that is a technological one. You know, uh, companies like Facebook and Apple and uh, Amazon, you know, are spending tens of billions of dollars a year, literally, on virtual reality and augmented reality. And uh, that is going to let uh, even more of your life be digitized. And once that's happened, it can be more gamified. Now, I do think that people do eventually realize that this stuff doesn't work and it's, it's pretty empty, but it can take a while. It can take months or years. And um, it's too tempting a tool for companies and, and institutions to use as a way to uh, feedback or, or manipulate people to give up easily. Well, thank you for reminding us of the human <laughs> playing the games. Um, and really appreciate you being on today with us, Adrian. Thank you. Adrian Hahn's book is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. Susie Britton produced today's segment. My thanks to our listeners as well for sharing their reflections on the increased gamification of our modern lives. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.